This message by C.J. Mahaney is the first in the four-part series titled Another Gospel, The Challenge of the Therapeutic Movement and is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. C.J. serves as Senior Pastor of Covenant Life Church and leads Sovereign Grace Ministries. Who are we and who is like you? We stand in awe of your greatness and your glory. And we gather this morning to glorify your name, to ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. And through humility, servanthood, obedience to advance the gospel of the kingdom for the glory of God. Lord, may this message contribute to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In 1909, at the height of one of the busiest periods of immigration in American history, two arrivals from Europe stood at the rail of their ship as it passed the Statue of Liberty and entered the New York Harbor. The older one, a 53-year-old Jew born in Moravia, poked the younger man from Switzerland in the ribs and said with excitement, Won't they get a surprise when they hear what we have to say to them? But the two men were not on their way to Ellis Island, nor were they immigrants. The speaker was Sigmund Freud. His companion was his friend and disciple, Carl Jung. And in the form of psychoanalysis and its legacy, what we have to say to them has had as much impact on the United States in the 20th century as any one set of human ideas and words. Their accomplishments represent one of the great developments in the understanding of human nature. Within six years of their arrival, their ideas had set up a reverberation in human thought and conduct of which few as yet dare to predict the consequences, wrote Walter Lippmann in the New Republic. The result has been hailed as the triumph of the therapeutic and the arrival of the psychological man. What were once the esoteric ideas of a small and controversial European elite have mushroomed in America into a dominant academic discipline and a vast lucrative industry. More than 500 brand name therapies now jostle to compete for millions of clients in an expanding market of McFroid franchises. It's well written, isn't it? It's because it's written by Oz Guinness. And independent outlets that pull in more than $4 billion a year. In America today, it is more hazardous to believe you are not sick than to believe that you are. In the 1990s, the roving spotlight of national attention is on the recovery movement. The 20th century is closing with the same national nervousness and psychic epidemic as did the 19th century. But the recovery movement is only the latest, fastest growing and most popular, most accessible and most religious of the many therapies that make up the broader therapeutic movement. And when Christians handle them thoughtlessly and uncritically, they easily become another gospel. At the very least, we must employ critical discernment that is far removed from breathless naivete as we engage with the therapeutic movement today. At the very least, we must employ critical discernment. The outline you have before you is my attempt to serve us in employing critical discernment. 
Over the last three years, I have taught you, warned you, sought to instruct you, sought to critique the therapeutic movement, as well as present the biblical alternative at different times, different occasions, in different series. We taught on Colossians, Philippians, etc. What I'm going to attempt to do is give you really a synopsis in the next two weeks, the title being Another Gospel, The Challenge of the Therapeutic Movement. Now, though this can have a restrictive feel to me, I wanted you to have this outline, and in particular, I wanted you to have these quotes. I have accumulated them over the years. They are the best in communicating, I believe, a biblical worldview and what our response is to be in light of the challenge of the therapeutic movement. And so I'm deferring to these and gladly deferring to these individuals. I'm almost tempted to present this message today and then to present my commentary next week, but I don't think time will permit that. This is just part one of two. You just have part one of the outline. Part two will be given you next week. At the end of part two of the outline is a bibliography uh, which will list all of the quotes, etc., and the books and I commend all of those to you. Another gospel, the challenge of the therapeutic movement. I want to begin by highlighting the undeniable popularity and influence of the modern therapeutic movement. David Pallison, in describing the entry and effect of psychology into evangelical mainstream since the mid-1980s, has made the following observation. Popular psychologies, inevitably integrated with biblical language and proof text, increasingly claim the loyalty not only of Christian therapists, but now of evangelical parishioners and pastors. Most significantly, psychological categories increasingly became the language of daily life in evangelical circles. That is tragic, but true. I was just recently at a pastor's conference in Chicago. There were some 250, 300 pastors in the room, and we were uh, at a conference which was talking about small groups and how to improve small groups, etc., and there was definitely some value there, some benefit in how they administrate, etc. I did not go there and was accompanied by Grant and John. We did not go there because of the theological strength of this church, but we went there to learn because they have administrative strengths. And in the question and answer period, uh, one individual, a pastor, visiting pastor, there to learn, raised his hand and began to describe a particular individual who was a part of one of their small groups using uh, all of the psychobabble possible to describe this individual's condition. And I sat there in the back of the room and I just noted that there was an uncritical acceptance that the way he was describing this individual was in fact accurate, even though it was completely unbiblical. And I was immediately discouraged and depressed. Now, there's going to be obviously some emotion accompanying this message. There's emotion accompanying every message that I bring to you. I don't want you to misinterpret that emotion. Do I get discouraged at what's taking place in our country, particularly with regard to the influence of the therapeutic movement? Yes, but... I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom. And I have no question that God is building His church and that pastors are evaluating this, that pastors are seeing through this, and pastors are building churches on the sovereignty, the supremacy, and the sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I am encouraged, and I'm in faith, and I want to commend you. I'm not bringing you these messages because I'm concerned about this church. I am concerned that you be protected because you can't be protected from the influence of the therapeutic movement, but you can be protected from the effect of the therapeutic movement. I'm not bringing this in any way to bring an adjustment because this will not be new information to you. I am bringing this because we need our discernment developed, though. We need it continually developed, particularly with the proliferation of materials that are existent today. We now have the Recovery Bible. We now have just recently released the Recovery Music Series. I read some excerpts from the Recovery Bible. David's sin of adultery is referred to as a mistake. It's, it's, it's just sad, the contents of the Recovery Bible. Now, if you listen to Christian radio, and I, I'm sorry to communicate this morning, I hope, I hope I'm not communicating in arrogance. If I am, please adjust me. I walk very carefully before God, and I have all of these men 
who do an outstanding job. And beyond them, I have the best individual who watches over my heart very carefully. That's my wife and her gift of discernment. So I don't want to be arrogant. But I would be remiss if I didn't communicate to you. I rarely listen to Christian. I mean, rarely listen to Christian radio. But I am aware of what's on. And the majority of what I'm aware of that's on in a teaching capacity, I don't approve of. And I wouldn't encourage you to listen to. I think you can benefit in your car far more effectively from either enjoying solitude, communing with God, listening to worship music, and listening to teaching tapes that are of a biblical nature than one show after another that is just not communicating sound doctrine. So I believe there are some steps you can take so that you don't have to experience even the influence of the therapeutic movement. Please note in your outline, Os Guinness notes, the recovery movement has taken not only America, but evangelicalism by storm in the form of Christian and not so Christian books, programs, small groups, and counseling centers. It represents the highest floodwater mark of the therapeutic on the church so far. By the way, what's happening with the therapeutic movement, you need to know, is somewhat uniquely American as well. Twelve-step this and that have been given the authority of the apostolic twelve themselves, and the result has been hailed as renewal. By the way, I could give you just a brief quote. There was an article in Christianity Today, a very favorable article concerning the therapeutic movement. It was entitled, Franchising Hope. And I really struggled with the article because they quote individuals. Well, let me just give you one quote in particular that will help you to get a feel for the flavor of the article. Psychologist Henry Cloud says the recovery movement makes for a much more biblical church than we've seen so far. Another individual quoted here says, if you aren't in some kind of recovery group, you're denying the reality of who you are. The article comments at one point just prior to concluding the situation is in flux, but psychology and the church look to be permanent partners. Not here. Not in this church. We are not permanent partners. Twelve step this and that have been given the authority of the apostolic twelve themselves and the result has been hailed as renewal. The triumph of the therapeutic has finally transformed psychology from a mere discipline to a worldview and a way of life. Triumphing as a social revolution, the therapeutic has gained a self-evident status and a taken-for-granted cultural authority that is rarely questioned. Diagnosis and therapy are so obvious to 20th century Americans as demons and witches were to 17th century Americans. Listen to this final statement here. Or look at it. It's on your outline. In law, they replaced crime and punishment. That's true. And in religion, they've replaced sin and redemption. That's even more serious. I believe there's a quote there by John MacArthur, which is accurate. Evangelicalism is infatuated with psychotherapy. It is not only popular, it is erroneous. I believe Os Guinness is accurate in this statement. It is an open challenge. What is taking place is an open challenge to historic Christian orthodoxy. The therapeutic now offers eight alternatives. By the way, this is taken from a just recently released book entitled No God But God. It's available at our book table. I recommend it. Matter of fact, I was at this same conference. I was in a bookstore, and unfortunately, this is not abnormal, going into a Christian bookstore. And if my memory serves me correctly, there were six sections in this bookstore devoted to psychology and recovery. As I made my way around the bookstore, I eventually found the one sorry shelf that was devoted to theology. And then I noted that this book was placed on the shelf of new arrivals. And I thought, whoever is owning or running this particular bookstore has not read that book. Because if you read that book, and if you agree with that book, and if you respond appropriately to that book, we've got about six sections here that are going to go and be replaced with books. Sound doctrine is the content of these books. That's why we are going to have our own bookstore so that I can go into a bookstore and be happy. That's where you'll find me daily. If you want to get in touch with me, I won't be in my office. I will be in our new bookstore. I believe in the importance of biblical materials. The therapeutic, he points out, now offers eight alternatives, all deceptive and all substitutes for God. These eight are temptations that the evangelical church must confront, and we are seeking to confront them in this church and have for years now. 
an alternative authority, an alternative worldview, an alternative language of skepticism, alternative priests, an alternative pathology, an alternative self, an alternative faith. And this is where it culminates, an alternative salvation. That's where it all culminates in its effect. He goes on to say that the overall story of pastoral care in the United States has been summed up as the shift from salvation to self-realization, made up of smaller shifts from self-denial to self-love to self-mastery, and finally to self-realization. The victory of the therapeutic over-theology is therefore nothing less than the secularization and replacement of salvation. The secularization and replacement of salvation. Do you remember when we were going through the series on the doctrine of the church, I quoted you that... Uh, that excerpt from uh, Charles Colson's book, he says that therapy and the promise of material reward may lure people into our churches, but so might free reefers handed out at the sanctuary door. Do you remember that? You remember a number of you didn't know what a free reefer was. You didn't know what a reefer was. When I gave that quote, I immediately became aware of my age. Because there were a number of just reefer. What's a reefer? It's what our president didn't inhale. And it's... I, I, let me pause. I need to repent. As a former pothead, I'm sure that former potheads and present potheads around the world found that statement, even that possibility, quite amusing. (laughs) But I do want to keep praying for mercy for our president because he doesn't stand on any different ground than I do in need of mercy. Therapy and the promise of material reward, Colson says, may lure people into our churches, but so might free reefers handed out in the sanctuary, and it's debatable which would do more harm. Well said. Now, I want you to note on your outline, this is not to deny that psychology has some legitimacy. I don't want to be misunderstood. Dan Matzik comments, like medicine, biology, astronomy, and physics, psychology can collect observable data, but it cannot offer any insight into the ultimate questions. Those answers are found only in the kingdom of grace, only in the gospel, which itself is found only in the text of Holy Scripture. Please turn to the next quote, Jay Adams. Psychology and medicine are not necessarily in competition with the Bible. It is clinical and counseling psychology and psychiatry that have illegitimately set themselves up within those two disciplines that are competitive. Legitimate medicine and psychology, while holding no special relationship to Christian counseling, can contribute to it in an ancillary way, as they would to any other field. But Christian counseling is in no way dependent upon data from either field, Christ, the perfect counselor, Paul, and the church have been totally equipped to carry on counseling from early times. Why has the therapeutic movement, the recovery movement... So let me just make sure I'm not going to be misunderstood here. If you are here this morning and you are majoring in psychology, if you've graduated with a degree in psychology, or if you want to be a Christian psychologist, and you want to know, does he think that that's not possible? No, I think it is possible. I think it's going to be very difficult. I think it's possible. I was speaking in the church uh, at the team-related church in Charlotte a few months back, and uh, there's a professor of psychology at the local university who's a part of that church, and he is completely identified with a biblical worldview, which makes him quite unique in his department because he's not trying to integrate. He believes in the authority of Scripture, the ultimate authority of Scripture, the final authority of Scripture. So it is possible but it is extremely difficult. Why has the therapeutic movement or the recovery movement become so widely accepted? Let me pose some thoughts. These are just my observations from my limited experience. Number one, there's a theological deficiency among pastors. Now, I hope this statement doesn't appear to be self-serving. It's accurate. We are aware that there is so much more to learn. But I trust you are aware that we take study seriously. And there is not a theological deficiency here. 
We don't have the opportunity to attend seminaries, but what we do is we take courses similar to what's being offered, and we choose the teachers that we believe are the most effective in communicating. We're doing this because we love God, we're doing this to please God, and we're doing this to serve you. So when I make this point, I'm not making it with any reference to what's taking place here. I couldn't couldn't be more prouder of these guys in their response and in their desire to learn and in their study of the scriptures. But I'm speaking nationwide as I observe it. There's just a lack of content. There's a lack of discernment among pastors and there's a lack of courage as well to both confront and to clarify. So we've been theologically unprepared. You know what? This is embarrassing. Could we put, I want to put a slide back on if I could so that you can read, because I just pulled this out this past week. Can somebody, does anybody know how to function with this? Thank you so much. <laughs> Not being gifted. This is from Os Guinness as well. What I want you to see here is, really, I find this embarrassing. even have to bring up to you that there is a theological deficiency among pastors is simply embarrassing, but it's true. Mr. Guinness says that there is a perverse feature of Christian cultural surrender. When Christians freely capitulate to some trend or another, our commitment is often as fierce as it is late. This is an outstanding quote. Often, it can only be pried loose when the secular world leads Christians to abandon what it earlier led them to adopt. This cycle is already evident in the recovery movement. The euphoria of latter-day evangelical converts is rising just as secular enthusiasm is waning. Christianity Today has many advertisements, Christian public service announcements for recovery hotlines, just as books in the secular culture like The Freudian Fraud are being published, and Newsweek has a cover story on The Curse of Self-Esteem. The lesson seems to be, buy late. This is the lesson, this is the typical state of the church in our country. Buy late and always be out of date. Before long, American evangelicals will slowly awaken to this exercise in foolishness in relation to the therapeutic revolution as a whole. The disillusionment will likely come at one of two points. One, psychology's inability to answer psychological problems from within its own humanistic framework, or psychology's contribution to America's broader crisis. And he concludes this by saying, the latter is particularly relevant today. So this is embarrassing. There are two books that have just recently been published. One is called, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional. It, this is not being written by a Christian. This is being written by someone who is a non-Christian. Her name is Wendy Kaminer. She is a self-proclaimed humanist, feminist, and it's a critique of the recovery movement. Someone loaned it to me two weeks ago. She's got a chapter in there critiquing the Christian accommodation of the recovery movement. A non-Christian feminist humanist who has more insight at times. I'm not saying I endorse all of her insight. But more insight at times than genuine Christians who lack discernment and sound doctrine. Listen to this. This is from a recent article I received by John MacArthur. Many evangelicals view psychotherapy with an awe that approaches reverence. Ironically, while the church is embracing psychotherapy more fervently than ever, many secular psychologists and psychiatrists are raising serious questions about the validity of their own basic presuppositions. He says in his own book, Our Sufficiency in Christ, I quoted several, several secular news reports chronicling the decline of psychotherapy. I cited a conference held in Phoenix in 1985, billed as the largest gathering of psychotherapists ever assembled. Several participants in that conference, well-known leaders in secular behavioral studies, essentially admitted that there was very little science and a lot of guesswork, charlatanism, and quackery in their profession. A Time Magazine article on the state of psychotherapy said, Psychiatrists themselves acknowledge that their, possession, that their profession often smacks of modern alchemy, full of jargon uh, and mystification, but precious little real knowledge. 
The sad truth is Christian psychology offers nothing distinctively Christian. Though it is often called Christian or even biblical, the psychology that has taken evangelicalism by storm is nothing more than Freudianism described, disguised rather with spiritual imagery or repackaged with sprinklings of Christian terminology. A couple of Christian psychologists were honest enough to admit at the present time there is no acceptable Christian psychology that is markedly different from non-Christian psychology. It is difficult to imply that we function in a manner that is fundamentally distinct from our non-Christian colleagues. End of quote. To those who understand the roots of psychology and the sufficiency of the Bible's alternative, that is frankly frightening. Psychology grew out of atheistic and evolutionary presuppositions. Whatever is effective in psychotherapeutic technique is limited to very superficial, temporal level. Far from being life-transforming divine truth, there is not even a unified system that can be stated in principles on which all psychologists will agree. Psychotherapy is practiced today even in the church as a mass of confused and often contradictory human ideas. Clearly, as a system, psychology cannot be successfully integrated with Christian truth. And then he goes on to quote from this recent book, I'm Dysfunctional, You're Dysfunctional, by Wendy Kaminer, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, debunks much of the mystique of modern psychology. The author does not purport to be a Christian. She describes herself as a skeptical, secular humanist, Jewish, feminist, intellectual lawyer. That's her own description. (laughs) Yet she writes as a bitter critic of the marriage of religion and psychology. She notes that religion and psychology have always more or less deemed one another incompatible. Now she sees, and I quote, not just a truce, but a remarkable accommodation on the part of religion, of psychology. Even from her perspective as an unbeliever, she can see that this accommodation has has meant a change in the fundamental message. She writes, and I quote, religious writers would minimize or dismiss the effect of psychology on religion, fiercely denying that it has made doctrinal changes, but it does seem to have influenced the tone and packaging of religious appeals. Christian codependency books like those produced by Minerth Meyer Clinic in Texas, are practically indistinguishable from codependency books published by secular writers. She goes on to, uh, to bring some other criticism as well. This is embarrassing. It is embarrassing to have to be corrected by someone who isn't even a Christian. But I'll tell you what, God will correct us through whom he will. If you don't listen to those within, he'll go without Number two, the lack of respect. Why is it popular? The lack of respect for the competence of pastors and the unquestioned reverence and deference to psychologists and psychiatrists. They've got authority in this culture that pastors do not. That is always obvious to us in any courtroom context. They do not want to hear from a pastor. They want to hear from a professional. They think of us pastors. We're well-meaning, but we're incompetent. Number three, the biblical illiteracy that characterizes the average Christian has contributed to this as well. I could do a whole message on that. Perhaps in the future I will. Number four is the attractiveness of the content. The attractiveness of the content. Now this was sent to me by, I forget who, someone in the church who is a Calvin and Hobbes comic strip fan. And uh, I don't, I'm going to read to you from this comic strip because it's very insightful. I'm not sure who's Calvin and who's Hobbes. Calvin's a boy. Hobbes is the tiger. All right. Did you catch that? That's why I am where I am today. That kind of quick. (laughs) All right. Who's the boy? I'm sorry. (laughs) Calvin's the boy. Calvin, first frame of the comic. Nothing I do is my fault. Hobbes is just looking on, a little perplexed, scratching his cheek. Next frame, Calvin continues. My family is dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not (laughs) self-actualized. Third frame. My behavior is addictive, functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my action. Final frame. Calvin says, I love the culture of victimhood. Hobbes says, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. (laughs) Why is it popular? Well, the content is attractive. What do I mean by attractive? Attractive in this regard. Any content that releases us from moral responsibility for our behavior is attractive. 
And I, I want you to be aware of how the material is presented. I hope this can help you. This is a recent book released by University Press. It's entitled False Intimacy, Understanding the Struggle of Sexual Addiction. Now, as soon as you see the word addiction, you should be aware that you are not functioning from a biblical model. That's a medical model. That implies disease. That implies that one is not responsible and that one is really powerless to overcome their challenge, struggle, difficulty. Now, when I say this is attractively presented, not only does it release one from moral responsibility, I want you to know that these individuals who write these books, and I'm not denying their sincerity, all right? Something you've got to understand. This is, this is a challenge for multiple reasons. One is this. I, I don't want you to think I'm some self-appointed sheriff. I, I am not. I am appointed to serve you. I don't see myself beyond that, except for in the uh, PDI team-related churches, having a responsibility. And I have no doubt about the sincerity of individuals that I'm critiquing. And I'm not critiquing them, I'm critiquing their positions. And I have been exposed to individuals who are, I feel, outstanding in their critique of content, but need an adjustment in their attitude. Listen to a tape by an individual about three weeks ago. I have one of their books. I think it's a great book. In the tape, they were communicating, and communicating a definite degree of frustration. They gave an illustration of being asked to speak at a church recently, and the individual said to the pastor, Can I name names? This is the quote. I'm not coming unless I can name names. And I stopped the tape player and I thought, I disassociate myself with that attitude. That's not what motivates me. And when he says name names, he means he wants to be able to name Clyde Naramore and Larry Crabb and James Dobson. And here's my struggle. My struggle isn't so much that he names names. My struggle is that when he names names, he does not make any positive statement about either... Now, I assume he knows this, but I think he has a responsibility to communicate it about either their sincerity, their character, or the invaluable contribution they are making, even if he believes that it's a limited one, or even where he disagrees. See, I think, personally, James Dobson has some deficiencies... Theologically. But I don't play in James Dobson's league. And when I talk about James Dobson or, from a theological perspective, something I want to adjust, I will always preface those remarks by saying this. I'm one of his biggest fans. His influence on the family in this country has been invaluable. He is a humble man who has my full support. And I would want you to hear that. And then from there, I will challenge what he believes about self-esteem, and other areas that I don't think are biblical. I don't think he's coming at them uh, theologically in, in a sound way. So please understand, when I'm talking to you about this book, I don't know this gentleman, and I, I do not walk into bookstores looking around for books that I can somehow critique and in an arrogant, self-satisfied way convince others. That's not my attitude. It's not my approach. It's not what I'm about. But I do have a responsibility to teach you discernment. Because this stuff is packaged very attractively and subtly. This book, this recent release, False Intimacy. Understanding the Struggle of Sexual Addiction. If you were just to read chapter 1, and this, this often is the norm in literature of this form. What you have is three stories. Listen, this is how it starts out. Tony, a young college student, had been adopted at age 7. He had never felt fully accepted by his adoptive family because he didn't resemble his new parents and because later on they had a natural child. In high school, St Tony started masturbating and looking at pornography to give him a good feeling and ease the loneliness. But loneliness continued to haunt Tony as he entered college. And the more he struggled academically, the more he used pornographic magazines, etc. 
After a while, he needed a greater high, so he began to call the 800 dial-a-porn numbers. This really met a need in my life, he later told me. Those conversations helped me feel less lonely. Next story. On the afternoon, one afternoon, a woman in her early 30s called me and described for 10 minutes how she would compulsively pick up men. Now listen, you read through these stories, they are very well written. And I'm not denying that this is the experience of certain individuals. I trust these are true stories. What I want you to know is this. Unsuspecting individuals who are biblically illiterate will read this. And because they identify with the story, because they are gripped by the fact that these are so well-written descriptions of their experience, they will then assume that the solution that will be provided in these books is accurate and authoritative as well. And what I'm here to tell you is, it is not. I don't say that with any sense of fulfillment. See, when I'm reading a book like this or looking over a book like this to review, I want to know a few things. I want to know what's the doctrine of God. I want to know what's this person's doctrine of sin. Now, what do they believe about the doctrine of sanctification? Well, let me just communicate just from this book. I'm not misrepresenting this individual I trust. I'm quoting from this individual. He says the following. I propose that the definition of sexual addiction needs to be expanded beyond the terms commonly used. Come again? I propose that the definition of sexual addiction needs to be expanded. Well, first of all, it's not ever referred to in the Bible as an addiction, and it doesn't need to be expanded. We just need to insist on what has already been written. He says, it is true that sex addicts tenaciously pursue sex as the primary source of their self-fulfillment. You'll also notice that in these books, if they do refer to sin, and he is going to make reference to sin, I want to draw that to your attention, you have to look at how they define it. Because often sin is defined as against oneself or pursuing self-fulfillment. It's not in reference to God himself. He says, at the risk of offering a barren platitude, I suggest the sec that sexual addiction primarily stems from the sinfulness of the human heart. Okay, there's sin, but listen. Do not think that because sin is referenced, that the definition of sin is biblical. Because it's not. I will go on to explain. Again, I'm quoting. I suggest that sexual addiction primarily stems from the sinfulness of the human heart and a reluctance to be in a passionate, dependent relationship with God. By the way, the Bible doesn't say we're reluctant. The Bible talks about us being rebellious. It's very different. The solution to sin is this. However, this is continued to quote, is not as simple as some Christians make it sound. Now, something else is being communicated here, and that's this. Anybody who believes in the sufficiency of Scripture, they're rather simplistic. This isn't as simple as some Christians make it sound. See, the Bible is kind of shallow, kind of superficial, kind of simplistic, kind of outdated. Often Christians tend to dismiss complicated problems. You've got to follow these words carefully. This isn't complicated. The behavior described in here is not complicated. The Bible doesn't say anything about complicated. You know what the Bible says? No temptation has overtaken you except those that are what? Common to man. I wouldn't deny that there might be some complicated consequences by the way, listen to this statement. Often Christians tend to dismiss complicated problems easily with an exhortation to trust in God. Now, I know what he's saying there. There needs to be an explanation. There needs to be care. There needs to be encouragement. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be sound doctrine. But folks, let us never make light of the exhortation to trust in God. <laughs> Ever. Sexual addiction is a complex problem. There we have it again. It's complex with multiple cause causes and far-reaching consequences. It results when a person becomes dependent on sexual experiences to achieve a sense of personal fulfillment. A person who feels that life isn't fulfilling, who experiences disappointment and intimacy, who loses hope, and who lacks self-confidence is a candidate to be enticed into sexual addiction. Now he's just introduced you to his definition of sin. And none of that is a biblical definition. 
Few of us, he says in the next paragraph, have the courage to enter the subterranean world of the human heart. Bible doesn't lack the courage to enter the subterranean world of the human heart. But again, what, what's the impression left? Well, the impression is left is that there is this deep and mysterious subterranean world. And many of us don't have the courage to enter it. Of course, the Bible doesn't speak to it. Listen, the Bible does. Not in flattering terms. Jesus said it this way. Out of your evil hearts comes slander, immorality, adultery. He gives a little list. Now, you're at the bottom there of the human heart, all right? There's nothing subterranean beyond that. Where are you going? I'll tell you where you're going. You're going to find some excuse to release you from moral responsibility and accountability to the living God. That's what you're looking for when you embark on an endeavor. And you can embark on that reading Christian literature. Few of us have the courage to enter the subterranean world of the human heart. By the way, by God's grace, we do here. If anybody's sitting down here saying, all right, you're in denial. No. (laughs) Pause before I sin. No, I'm not in denial. I try to every week confess to this church where I have disobeyed and what I'm doing about it. That's how we live our lives here. It's interesting, in reading this literature, they often characterize the church as a place where nobody cares, and I shared my need, and I was just rejected. And these testimonies are received as authoritative without anybody going and saying, you know what, did maybe somebody want to hold you responsible for your actions and and maybe help you to repent? They're being very kind to you at this clinic, aren't they? Number one, they're not approaching it from a biblical worldview. Number two, you're paying them. (laughs) Folks, we believe in care here. We don't hide our sins. This isn't a place where when you confess what you've done wrong, you are rejected. You are respected for that as long as you are serious about wanting to be restored in your relationship with God and reconciled to any other individual you've offended. This is a redemptive atmosphere here. But it's an atmosphere where we're pursuing godliness. Not trying to excuse each other for our disobedience. Because we understand the deceitfulness of sin. He goes on to say, several tears below the surface. Okay, got some tears here. Is a pervasive, listen, because here's his definition of sin. Integral force that demands the right to avoid pain and experience self-fulfillment. This self-centered energy is the very essence of what the Bible calls sin. Now, I want to just respectfully, categorically disagree with this individual. That is not the essence of what the Bible calls sin. The essence of sin is not the right to avoid pain and experience self-fulfillment. The biblical definition of sin is rejecting and rebelling against the sovereign authority of God. That's a biblical definition of sin. All sin isn't to avoid pain or to pursue self-fulfillment. Sin is an assault against the authority and rule of God in our lives. All sin is against God, which is why when David was convicted of his sin, he said, against you and against you only, I have sinned. Theologian Anthony Hokema says, sin is therefore opposition to God, rebellion against God, which roots in hatred of God. Sin is always related, folks, to God and his will. And any time we start inserting the avoidance of pain, the right to self-fulfillment, the pursuit of self-fulfillment, some of the, the reluctance to be dependent on God, it is not an accurate scripture. Listen, the Bible isn't very flattering concerning sin in our lives. 
We just read from Titus 3 this morning. It was not a very flattering list. There was no understanding being to you once foolish, disobedient, rebellious, etc. Hating wasn't flattering, but it was accurate. As we shall see in the next chapter, there's many different types of sexually addictive behaviors. The key point to recognize here is that sexual addiction isn't just an issue of sex or even external behavior. It's a byproduct. Here's another definition of sin. It's a byproduct of loneliness, pain, the self-centered demand to be loved and accepted regardless of the consequences and a loss of vital relationship with God. Sin is not a byproduct of, of loneliness. Sin is not a byproduct of pain. Sin is the source. It's not a byproduct. See, when you're reading this, if you don't have discernment, what happens to you is you begin, yeah, it's, it's the unmet needs in my life. It's all understandable because I'm, I'm lonely. Look, I'm not denying loneliness. These illustrations are difficult to give because I run the high risk of being misunderstood. But you must be educated. Loneliness is never an excuse for disobedience. I'm not denying you have pain. The Bible doesn't deny the presence of pain. But pain isn't the essence of sin. And sin isn't a byproduct of pain. David Pallison was talking to a bookstore owner. And he said, what's hot these days? And the bookstore owner said, anything with pain in the title. The guy said, I can't keep it on the shelf. Not anything with God in the title. Not anything with obedience in the title. Not anything with discipleship, humility, servanthood. Not, not with those things. With pain. Now, anybody right now who's in touch with your pain. Because you know what? Particularly guests I'm concerned about. I could appear to be very harsh and lacking compassion. And I'm not. I'm not harsh. And I'm not lacking compassion. I'm straightforward. And I believe I'm being accurate to Scripture so that everyone here might please God, glorify God, and experience the freedom that accompanies obedience to God. That's my motive. That's my purpose. The Bible doesn't describe loneliness, pain, pursuing self-fulfillment. I would say to this man, if I was debating him, Sir, your definition of sin is shallow and superficial. Not the biblical definition of sin. This material is attractive. It's attractive. It will bring to your attention all the unmet needs that still exist in your life. It will allow you to review the function, the job your parents did. It will take you through hours of that. I've said to you before, when somebody says, I come from a dysfunctional family, my response is, there isn't any other kind of family. <laughs> these, these words, they, they are meaningless. The material's attractive. <laughs> On Friday, we're standing in the office number of the folks are standing around. I was going to give you the whole outline this morning. I made a major adjustment on Friday and I thought, you know what? I'll try to do this in two parts. Standing there at the desk, Nora Earl says, I I'd recommend at least three. <laughs> Maybe four, somebody said. You're very appreciative. You know, we've done these outlines. We're the ones, it's been very helpful. I said, no, I, I can get through in two weeks. I just know I can. What are you clapping for? Yeah, I need a support group. By the way, I believe in support groups. My question is this. What are you supporting? 
If you're supporting the pursuit of godliness, I'm with you. Let's have a support group. And we've got them here that are effective. But if you're talking about just supporting you while you endlessly rehearse your past and excuse your activity, which is in disobedience to God and not in your best interest either, then no, that's not our definition of a support group. We believe in small groups here, but they are to be biblically based and motivated small groups. Encourage one another day after day. Encourage one another each day, it says. Why? Because of the deceitfulness of sin. Well, encourage one another in what way? Encourage one another to the pursuit of godliness. Encourage one another to pursue God. Encourage one another to obey God. Encourage one another to glorify God. That's what support groups are about. It's my last point, but I wanted to insert it there so that no one could misunderstand. And you know what we're doing here? We're presenting a biblical alternative to the recovery movement. Sad to say that the predominance of literature of the recovery movement today is geared for small groups. You know that? Serendipity, which used to just have, and still does to some degree, some outstanding uh, material, biblical content, now just seems to be almost exclusively devoted to communicating psychotherapy. It's sad. That's why we at PDI, we've started our own line of small group materials that, that you have benefited from and been very uh, gracious in your communication. Discipline for Life, the Spiritual Disciplines, This Great Salvation, The Doctrine of Justification, Gary and Betsy's uh, book on marriage, Love That Lasts. Rob and I are working on a book now on the Doctrine of Sanctification because there's such ignorance to this that leaves Christians vulnerable to the therapeutic movement because they don't understand what the Bible teaches about regeneration, which is what we need, folks. The issue today isn't a need for recovery. The issue is a need for regeneration, followed by repentance that results in someone being transformed. There is no power in psychology. There is no power to change one's life in psychotherapy. Sin cannot be rehabilitated. It is only by a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ, where through the Word and the Spirit, through obedience, humility, and servanthood, in the context of a local church, somebody is conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Where Jeff Herbert can stand up here and say, my desire, drugs and alcohol, was delivered. It was changed, not in the context of therapy, but in the context of a local church where he was the recipient of sound teaching and biblical support relationally. That's what it's about. That's what our culture needs. You've been listening to the first message in a four-part series by C.J. Mahaney titled Another Gospel, The Challenge of the Therapeutic Movement. It was recorded at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.